Career Journeys with Lisa and Sheila. Today, we're thrilled to be joined by Shane Cole, CFRE. Shane is the Associate Vice President of Philanthropy with the Theta Care Family of Foundations team. Theta Care is a community health system consisting of seven Wisconsin hospitals. And in his role, Shane provides strategic direction and operational leadership to ensure successful execution of a comprehensive fund development program in support of Theta Care priorities. He oversees all fundraising operations, including major gifts, annual giving, planned giving, and capital campaign programming. Full disclosure, he's also my husband. Thanks for being here, Shane. Great to be here. Yes, thanks for being here, Shane. Can you? We can we start by having you tell us a little bit about yourself. Of course, I am originally from Appleton, Wisconsin. I went to receive my undergraduate at the University of Wisconsin Green Bay, and had no idea what I wanted to be when I grew up. So I ended up with a communications major when I was at the university, and kind of fell into the nonprofit space. Didn't know that I would stay there for 27 years, but I have. Uh, I had a number of different roles and positions with different organizations over the years. Ended up receiving my master's degree about 10 years ago from St. Norbert College, and now find myself working in healthcare for the past 10 years. So you, you ended up getting a communications undergrad degree, and you said you went into it having no idea. Did you start with a communications major or did you go in undecided? I went in as a public and environmental administration major, which I had read about in the catalog. I had no idea what it meant, <laughs> but I decided it sounded good. Mm-hmm. And it lasted about a semester okay. where I had a public policy class that just made it very clear this probably wasn't the right major for me. Okay. So I was undecided for a couple of years and folks told me that I liked to talk uh, and I thought I was a good listener, so it seemed like communications was the right path for me. Okay. And when you were a kid, what kind of, did, did you imagine anything or did you, what did you want to be when you grew up when you were a kid? Did you have a direction or an idea? I suppose I was like most kids that the idea of being a firefighter probably sounded like a good idea for a while. <laughs> uh, I loved sports and knew I was never going to be good enough at sports to do it professionally, of course. But the idea of being a broadcaster or television or radio intrigued me. Mm. And so when I uh, got to the University of Wisconsin-Green Bay as a freshman, I actually volunteered and interned with the athletics department, writing press releases, doing public address announcing some radio work. Um, And that kind of allowed me to pursue that passion. Mm-hmm. But I knew it wasn't necessarily going to be a career option if I wanted to stay in the area. And so what was your path getting to where you are right now from sports information intern to fundraising? That seems like two kind of different worlds. I graduated in 1996 with an undergrad in communications and really no idea what it was I wanted to do. I had some opportunities. I could have gone to a radio station up north if I wanted to pursue radio broadcasting. But I had done a lot of event work when I was interning in athletics at UW-Green Bay. And so I knew how to run a golf outing and bike-a-thons and those sorts of things. And there was a nonprofit organization called the CP Center in De Pere, Wisconsin, that was looking for someone to help with their events. And I thought, well, I can do that. And I didn't really know a whole lot about the CP Center or nonprofit, I suppose, for that matter. 
And 27 years later, it turned out to be a good decision. Was there anybody that helped you make that decision or helped you along your career path? That's a great question. I, I knew I enjoyed learning. I, I, I've always been very inquisitive. I like learning things. Mm-hmm. And so the nonprofit space, I didn't know a lot about when I was coming out of college. And once I got into it, it was really intriguing for me to understand how all the pieces fit together for a nonprofit organization, from fundraising to mission. And no one in my family is involved in nonprofits. My family wasn't even necessarily philanthropic as I was growing up. I don't remember them volunteering, maybe as a little league coach or something like that, or volunteering at the library. But um, philanthropy was new in my world. And so it's just something that I, I kind of stumbled upon and have stuck it out. When you go into an organization that's philanthropic, do you have to believe in their mission going in or is it something that grows over time once you've joined the organization? It helps if you can connect to the mission. Most of the nonprofits I've worked for, I I can certainly understand, appreciate and support the mission when I'm out there seeking contributions. It helps, but it's not a necessity. I think there are probably some organizations that I don't have a deep connection to that I could still be a passionate advocate for. So what does your typical day look like? Oh, I, I wish I had two days in a row that looked the same, but in, in my world, that just doesn't occur, unfortunately. I could be working with donors in the morning. Uh, I have a staff, I have a team that I oversee, making sure you know, they're set up for success, helping them in and out of internal meetings within the organization, uh, writing grants, writing thank you letters, uh, you name it, it may happen during the day. So it's it's one of the things I enjoy most about the work that I do is no two days are the same. Would you say that your role or your responsibilities have changed since you started in the profession? The biggest change as a profession has probably been technology. Okay. Uh, I'm old, and so when I started in the profession, the first organization I worked for didn't have email. I mean, email was not a something you found everywhere. Uh, the second job I had out of college was with the Muscular Dystrophy Association, and I didn't have a computer in my office, which is crazy to think about now, 25 yeah. years later. Yeah. But So you picked up the phone and you called people, or you wrote letters, or you went and visited them. The biggest change has probably just been technology okay. that now I can stay in contact you know, with via email with 100 people at the same time, right. it feels like. But the drawback of that is there is probably less face-to-face contact that technology has taken the place of sitting down over a cup of coffee and, and talking with donors and talking with others. I miss that a little bit. I have way too many emails and not nearly enough in-person meetings in my day. Hmm. I bet a lot of people feel that way. I mean, you're the donors too, I'm sure. In, in your profession, is there, like once you're a fundraiser, that's the skill level you stay at? Or are there opportunities for professional development as a fundraiser? Or is it just kind of once you have it, the skills, you have the skills? There's always professional development opportunities. There's a number of areas, whether it's plan giving so or grant writing. Uh, there's a number of areas that you can, kind of specialize in or, be, or become stronger in. The next logical step for most fundraisers is to become an executive director of an organization. It's not always an easy step, though. A lot of organizations don't look to fundraisers as executive directors. They tend to look at the operational side or 
for the programming side uh, to draw for executive directors. So it really depends on the organization what that next step is. For me, I've been very fortunate to kind of follow a path of larger organizations over the years. So before I was at Vidicare, I was at the University of Wisconsin Green Bay for 10 years, which is a pretty large development shop, but Vidicare is a little bit larger. And so for me, it's just really taking out a larger team's more responsibility. And you worked for a smaller organization. How was that different? I worked for the Trout Museum of Art in Appleton, which was a three-person shop. There was an executive director, an ops person, and then a fundraiser. I really enjoyed working in the visual arts space. I was there for a little over a year. I am reminded that the number of people who support the arts, whether it's music or visual arts, is an incredibly small pool of people. Uh, They're very passionate about that work, but there is not enough of them. And so working in a small shop that had a small pool of prospects, boy, every day was just kind of a grind because you, you really had to focus on making sure that the programming you were putting on would draw an audience and that audience would support the work. And if you had some sort of exhibition, again, I am not an art expert in any way, shape, or form, but if you had something that didn't draw folks into the museum, you didn't make money. (laughs) Uh, And that was challenging. And so the different organizations I've been a part of, um, no one dislikes anything I've ever been a part of. No one dislikes higher education. No one dislikes healthcare. No one dislikes the arts. But the prospect pool for each of those constituencies is different. And so who who is the typical donor for the medical profession then? For us, it's mostly individuals who have benefited from our care, okay. either directly as patients or their family or friends. Uh, a lot of people think Vedicare is, a, as you mentioned, Sheila, a seven-hospital health system in northeast Wisconsin. People tend to think our competition is other healthcare organizations, other hospitals, it's really not, because when you think about it, you're going to support the hospital that you go to. Uh, you're not going to support a hospital that you don't receive services from. Our competition is really the Foxy's Performing Arts Center, the Boys and Girls Club, the March of Dimes, other nonprofit organizations that are reaching out to our constituents who use healthcare to encourage them to consider a gift. You had talked about putting on a pro putting on programs. So when you were working. In art, would that be like an art show that you were putting on? And now that you're in the healthcare field or when you were with higher education, like you probably, you know, target those events to the topic. Like, can you talk about what those programs would look like? Absolutely. For healthcare, we'll do events with donors where we'll bring maybe new physicians in to speak to those donors or if it's a new piece of equipment to show off. Uh, we'll bring donors into the facility uh, to see it, have the physicians explain it, what it is and how it works and how it makes a difference. In higher ed, we tried to highlight faculty, uh, the great research they were doing, a new book they had written. We always wanted to connect them with students when I was in higher ed. You know, that's really what they were supporting were the students in most cases. So we wanted to meet the students at these events, learn about the great work that they were doing. So it's really trying to find No one has ever made a contribution because of me. People give to whatever it is that I am supporting, but I want to make sure they understand the impact of their gift is doesn't make a difference to Shane per se. It makes a difference to that student Mm. or that patient. 
And I want to reinforce that. That's really my job is to understand the donor's passions, their values, and their interests, and be able to share with them what our needs are, kind of what our hopes are, our problems are that they can help solve. And when there's a match, Lisa, that's when great things happen. That's when donors step forward and say, I love what you're doing. I, I get it, and I want to help. Here's my contribution. But that match doesn't always take place. You know, I always talk, if, if a donor is passionate about Catholic health care, that's not, that's not our organization. That's a different organization across town where um, you know, if they love basic needs or hunger, that's not us. Mm-hmm. We're health care. And so really understanding that match of what their passions are and what our needs are is really when the fun happens. So how do you, you know, do you have email lists? Like how do you find your potential donors and then, you know, call out the people who aren't going to be a match? There's a couple different audiences we work with. So uh, grateful patients, so patients who receive care from our organization are certainly a constituency. Also, community leaders, large organizations and businesses who support the community. And then again, it's really my staff and I getting out there listening. I say the, the best thing I can be most days is, the, is a devout listener. Because most individuals, if you give them the chance, they will tell you what they care about. If you listen closely enough, they'll tell you what they're passionate about. And once you learn that, then you can find out if there's a match between their passions and our needs. But that doesn't happen via email or a, a letter. It, it really happens face-to-face. Mm-hmm. And that's the part of the job I enjoy most is getting out there and figuring out what it is they care deeply about and want to help us. And in most cases, it's not the right match. They you know, Just because they're a patient at Theta Care doesn't mean they make a contribution. I only wish that was the case. Mm-hmm. Healthcare is incredibly expensive as it is. Uh, asking them for a contribution on top of that sometimes is just not the right fit for most folks. What part of your job do you have to be the most vulnerable with? Oh, that's a great question. So much of what occurs with our patients and prospective donors has nothing to do with me. If they had a positive outcome in our facility or in our system, a great doctor, a great nurse, you know, we, we solve something, we fix something, we healed something. Good things can come of that. That's a fun conversation to have. But there are a lot of our patients, as there are in any healthcare system, that the outcome is not always positive. They didn't have a good experience with a physician. The, the issue, they had to wait in the waiting room for three hours because of you know, COVID or whatever it is. Um, and then here, uh, here Shane comes along to ask them for a contribution. They are more than happy to tell me that I should go away and why I should go away. <laughs> so that's always the challenges I have. I am always the tail, never the dog. I'm always downstream to what occurs at the physician level or at the, at the bedside. I'm way at the end of the process. So if it was a good process, uh, I, I can probably help build that relationship. But if it was a bad process or a bad outcome, uh, I know that's not going to be a positive outcome for me. What is the job market outlook for fundraisers right now? Right now, there are far more good positions than there are good people. We have seen a significant drain uh, during the pandemic of folks who have stepped away from the nonprofit space and have returned to the for-profit side, which makes sense. That, you know, the pandemic turned everything upside down. 
a lot of organizations really struggled, especially those that really did not have anything to do with the pandemic, such as the arts. Um, and so some of those organizations got smaller, had to reduce staff, had to cut budgets. So right now, there are just some great nonprofit organizations looking for good people and are really struggling to find them. That's, that's great. I mean, if somebody has a passion for it, that's nice to hear that there's a lot of good positions out there. And there are a lot of great organizations. There are probably 500 different nonprofit organizations here in the Fox Cities. And that sounds like a crazy number until you start to add them up, that there are, you know, there's the, the national organizations, the American Cancer Society, the American Heart Association, the March of Dimes, Muscular Dystrophy. You have K through 12 school districts and churches and colleges and universities. You have healthcare, you have little leagues, you have all sorts of these nonprofit entities that depend on philanthropic support to survive. And while many of them are just kind of volunteer driven, like the little leagues and, and the Boy Scouts, those sorts of things, many of them do have paid staff. And some of them even have large staff. We have a staff of 11. Lawrence University down the road from me has 32 staff members who do fundraising. So there's just a lot of great organizations out there that are looking for good folks. Do most of them come from the communications background? A lot of communication folks, uh, a lot of human services, social work. Uh, business folks, you know, you're, you're not going to grow wealthy and retire early being in the nonprofit space. I, I, I knew that when I signed up 27 years ago, that this was not going to make me a millionaire overnight. But it, it's really an opportunity to connect with people and to understand their passions. And, and so, it, again, just it's a nice match for me, but it depends on what you're looking for when you're coming out of college. Uh, but a lot of communications folks, Again, some social workers, business, marketing, you know, anybody who's a good listener is probably going to be successful in this job. You talked about making that you enjoy making connections with people and finding their passion. What would you say is the best part or the favorite, your favorite part of your job? Well, that's a great question, Lisa. I have been incredibly fortunate to meet and work with and become friends with some amazing individuals in a variety of fields. So leaders of business and industry and marketing and the arts and education, people who if I worked most jobs, I would never have the opportunity to interact with. Mm-hmm. And that's a, that's a lot of fun. And in the morning I could be talking to some sort of manufacturing leader, in the afternoon a physician, uh, later in the afternoon somebody completely different who does something you know, unlike anything else that I've ever done. Mm-hmm having a chance to work with people who are just incredibly creative and have been successful. That's the, that's really the part that I enjoy the most. Would you say, so, I mean, I can hear the passion in your voice when you're talking about this and it sounds like it's fun to you. Like, like what's fun about your job? It sounds like you, I can just hear that you, you enjoy it. Yeah. I, I am by nature an introvert which is surprising to a lot of people because they assume to be a fundraiser, you have to be an extrovert. You Mm -hmm. have to be a salesperson. You have to have a type A personality and and love cocktail dinners. And and I don't like cocktail (laughs) dinners. I don't. Um, I like listening. And so to, to be successful in this business, Lisa, I think the people who I've modeled my career on, who I really respect, are devout listeners who really take the time to listen. 
Because if you listen hard enough, the donor or the prospective donor will tell you everything you need to know. And oftentimes I think the fundraising or at least the sense of what fundraising is, is a whole lot of talking and selling. And uh, and that probably is a stereotype that might be true from time to time. Mm -hmm. But for me, the opportunity to really connect with someone, listen, learn what their passions are. That's the part that I enjoy the most. And again, I'm working with folks and, and seeing things, learning things that I probably wouldn't if I, if I worked at an insurance company or if I you know, worked somewhere else. I really appreciate that. I, I, I know that's a gift that's not guaranteed in most jobs. So if someone's thinking, oh, I might, I'm intrigued by fundraising, what kind of skills and attributes do you think somebody needs in order to do this job? You have to be a good listener. Because the more I talk, the less the donor talks. And the less the donor talks, the less I learn. So you have to be a good listener. And that's hard to do. I'm an only child. I love the sound of my own voice. I love to talk. And so for me to be quiet is not natural. It's something I have worked on for 27 years. But you have to be a good listener. You have to be a devout listener. You also have to really understand your mission and be able to share that mission with others. So I'll share a story with you. Um, I was new to healthcare when I joined ThetaCare about 10 years ago. I had done some other uh, similar nonprofit. I worked for the Muscular Dystrophy Association, but being in a hospital was a first for me 10 years ago. And on my third day on the job, I was in my office. An announcement came on over the loudspeaker, as it does in hospitals, and it said, attention, code STEMI, ETA, five minutes by air. Code stemming ETA five minutes by year. And I was on my third day. I had no idea what this was or if I was supposed to do something. You know, I, I watched ER when I was growing up. I don't know if I was supposed to run down a hall and you know, <laughs> leap over a bed or something. So I went next door to my coworker and I said, what, what is code stemming ETA five minutes? What does that mean? And she explained that code stemming is the most serious of heart attacks. Um, and ETA five minutes by air means they're coming in on Theta Care's helicopter, Theta Star, and they'll be touching down in five minutes. And right now there's a team of people, nurses and physicians and, and techs and everybody else, getting a space ready. So as soon as the helicopter lands, that group, that team can go out there, bring that individual in and do everything they can you know, to help them. And, I, and she made it very clear, my coworker made it very clear, they don't need me there. I'm, I'm all good. The fundraiser can stay upstairs. I'm all good. And so I went back to my office, and that's really when it hit me. I've never forgotten that moment. Because I knew at that moment that there was an individual uh, having a very serious heart attack on a helicopter coming to our facility. That somewhere his or her family uh, was receiving phone calls that they never expected to hear never wanted to get to say that their loved one was being rushed to a healthcare facility with a heart attack. Um, we've all been on the other end of those calls. It is the worst moment. It's, it's so unexpected. And to know that there was a team of people downstairs who right now are doing everything possible to make sure once that helicopter landed, that this individual received the best care humanly possible. And that that care would be made better by something that I did as a fundraiser. So a better piece of equipment or the hell, you know, we paid for the helicopter or whatever mm -hmm. it is that I played a very small role. Um, 
that's what hit me on the third day that, that this was serious, that what we were doing was incredibly important and that I could play a small role in that. And that was what's kept me coming back for the past 10 sure. years. Sure. Very powerful moment. That's amazing. That's an amazing story. Um, so you knew on your third day that um, running down the hall wasn't, you didn't need to be good at running down the hall, right? Jumping no. over beds, right? No. Um, how do you know when you're doing a good job? The physicians, the nurses, and others who we help support are always so great about telling us what they've been able to do that they would not be able to do without our support. So the helicopter is a great example, and not just at VetaCare, but any healthcare organization. If they have a, a medical helicopter, it is an incredible money loser mm. because you have to have it staffed 24-7, 365, not only with a pilot and a, a nurse or a flight nurse, but you also have a dispatcher. You also have a, a crew, obviously, who maintains the helicopter. Uh, every time it moves, it loses money. Okay. Every time it, it leaves the cement, it loses money. The insurance, the fuel, the staffing, everything. It's a money loser. But we have to have it. Right. Um, and so knowing that the dollars that I'm able to raise help make sure that we have the best helicopter and the best pilots and the best pieces or the best equipment or that we're sending nurses to continue their education and get an advanced degree. Those are the things that when physicians and others report back and say thank you, for helping make this possible, for providing this piece of equipment. Mm -hmm. That's the payoff for our end of the process. To see that in action, to hear from a patient whose life was saved because of some piece of equipment we had that had we not had it, they probably would not have survived. So Shane, what advice would you have for anybody who thinks they might want to be a fundraiser? I would encourage them to volunteer. And you can volunteer. Boy, there are a thousand great organizations looking for volunteers, whether it's the homeless shelter, the food bank, the hospitals, wherever it might be. Volunteer and see if you like that space. Again, you're not going to get rich being a nonprofit professional. Uh, the rewards are often intrinsic. Um, doing great work for those in need is, is certainly something that keeps you coming back day after day. But volunteer and see if it's something that you appreciate doing. Because sometimes you're asked to do more with less from a nonprofit perspective. You don't have the long budgets and the huge staff. So you you kind of find ways to be very creative in how you get good work done. Uh, but volunteer, talk to others who are in that space uh, and see if it's something for you. Uh, the hours are long, the pay is not great, but the benefits uh, in terms of knowing that you've had a significant impact on the lives of others makes it worthwhile most days. That makes sense. Mm -hmm. All right. So before we go, Shane, any final thoughts, anything that we didn't touch on? I hope that the listeners, when they think about how they choose to support nonprofit groups, are intentional about what they do and are never afraid about asking about the impact of their gift. I think all of us sometimes send checks to nonprofit organizations because it feels good and it's a good organization. But we don't always take the time to understand if the dollars are really making a difference. Don't ever be afraid to ask about the impact, to, to learn more about the numbers of what the organization is doing and the impact they're having. Um, as a nonprofit professional, I love it when people reach out to me and say, tell me more about how my gift is making a difference because it allows me to share the impact of that gift. I think often people just send a check in once a year and get the tax break and don't take the time to really understand um, 
if their gift is making the difference they hope it does. And if they're probably not able to tell you, that says a lot about their system and their organization and their mission if they can't succinctly tell you where your money is going. Uh, if they can't share a story with you, because I'm in the storytelling business, obviously. If they can't share a story of how your contribution made a difference in someone's life, you're probably giving to the wrong organization. It's time to revisit your philanthropy and see if there's another organization out there that speaks to both the head and the heart. Well, thank you again, Shane, for being here and sharing your profession with us. I think we definitely both are walking away with a better understanding of how impactful fundraisers are for the organizations that they represent. Oh, I appreciate the invitation. Yeah. All right. interesting that Shane sees himself as a storyteller, one who has to tell the story of the organization to potential donors to see if their passions match what the organization's goals are. I like Shane's advice that you should volunteer in an organization to see if you fit in that space. And also, it's interesting to note that you do not have to be an extrovert to be a fundraiser. Thanks for being here.